0: Welcome to the Clinical Consult for this jointly sponsored episode brought to you by the National Register of Health Service Psychologists and the Trust, an independent trust offering insurance, financial security, and risk management for psychologists and related individuals nationwide. For this discussion on the emerging and evolving world of telepsychology. To help us along the way, I'm pleased to be joined by four discussants, Dr. Morgan Sammons, Executive Officer of the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, Dr. Jana Martin, CEO of The Trust, and a recognized expert in risk management for psychologists, Dr. Gary Vandenbos, Managing Editor of the Journal of Health Service Psychology, and a Senior Professional Consultant at the National Register, and Dr. Sam Westgarden, Licensed Psychologist, in Wisconsin, who is cl- currently clinical assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who has special research interests in the rapidly evolving telepsych space. To kick us off here, Morgan, talk to me a little bit about how many health service psychologists are meeting with patients using these electronic mediums that we'll be talking about here today, like video conferencing. From, from your perspective, why is this so important? Well,
1: thank you very much, Dan. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to talk to that because one of our concerns in conducting this survey was uh, curiosity about what practice methods people were using in the face of this rapidly evolving coronavirus crisis. So we set out to survey psychologists who were members of the National Register and the Trust to see how the coronavirus had indeed affected their practice. It was our anticipation that our constituents, who are all licensed psychologists, either health service psychologists from the National Register or psychologists who hold uh, liability insurance from the trust, we felt that these psychologists would be a good representative sample of general psychological practice. So, in our survey, which we conducted only about two weeks into the active phase of the United States response to the coronavirus crisis, we really wanted to know how our providers had changed the way they interacted with patients. In order to do this, we put together a very brief rapid response survey, had 19 items figured it took about 10 minutes for a psychologist to complete it. And we sent it out to uh, samples of both the National Register and the trust constituents. We anticipated that most of our respondents would have shifted very rapidly to electronic platforms. We were quite surprised at the high percentage of those who had done so. And we think that this is reflective of general mental health practice, and it's going to represent a very significant long-term shift in how psychological and other mental health services are
0: delivered. So, Morgan, one of the things I'm hearing you tell me is that we're at kind of a, a crucial point in time in the nature of how psych- psychological services are, are provided. You know, Historically, we've oftentimes thought of mental health services being provided in person. And as you commented a moment ago, we're now seeing this is shifting quite rapidly. So you've done this survey to gather more information about the nature of that change and what's bringing it about and what it means for health service psychologists. Could you really briefly break down a few more technical parts of this survey? I don't want to get into the weeds here too much, but for our, our interested listeners, talk a little bit about who is in the sample and what was the response rate, things of that nature.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. And, and to emphasize the point that you just made, we did anticipate a very rapid shift into other than face-to-face methods of service delivery, and indeed our results, which Dr. Vandenbos will talk about in a few minutes, Indicated that very thing. I think the thing that's very important for us as planners of mental health service delivery, especially to pay attention to, is that we do not believe that this is a temporary phenomenon. This is an enduring change, I think, that is going to fundamentally shape patient provider relationships. So that was another reason why we thought it was important to do this survey because although people move very rapidly into this new area, we're not quite so sure that they are appropriately prepared to interact with patients in the ways that we would ideally envision distance services taking place. So at any rate, we sent emails to uh, members of the National Register and trust insureds. And we had uh, slightly over 20,000 people open those emails. That's certainly not the totality of the folks that we sent the emails to. And so we used that as our denominator And we had about 3,300 total responses. Of course, the responses to individual questions varied. So that gave us a response rate, a total response rate of around 13.6%. Now, you have to be a little cautious because that's not a terribly high response rate for this kind of rapid uh, response survey that we conducted. But it's acceptable for us to make some fairly, fairly confident in some general conclusions. So we did this, as I said, um, right really in the first couple of weeks after there was began to be an organized response in the United States to the coronavirus crisis. And people had begun things like physical distancing. And we were becoming increasingly aware of how severe uh, uh, an, a pandemic this was. And we did the survey about a week, actually, after the Secretary of Health and Human Services Declared an emergency in the United States, we got people very early in the transition into this new uh, into this new world that's uh, ruled by physical distancing and the coronavirus.
0: Let's go ahead and shift to Jana. As I'm listening to Morgan's response, you know he's he's telling me about this major shift in the nature of how psychological services are provided. I want to talk with you a little bit about the risk management side of, these, of this for, for our listeners. What should psychologists be considering?
2: Well, thank you, Dan, and it's a pleasure to be a part of this great discussion. The way I'd like to start is to frame it a bit to give some psychologists some reassurance. First and foremost, it's very important to put the practice of telepsychology in the context of other ways in which we as psychologists practice This hopefully reassures you that you have good backup knowledge and experience to be sure you do it well. Even though many of us have been thrust into this mode of practice, rather than our entering telepsychology after much review and consideration, we can cling to what we know to guide us so we can ensure we provide services which are effective and safe for us and for our clients. Let's keep in mind that telepsychology is not a specialty, but rather it's a modality that extends in-person standards of practice to telecommunication. Telepsychology doesn't draw upon nor derive from new ethical standards, but introduces the need for awareness of additional factors and decisions and actions that might arise in the context of electronic transmission. So that's good news. Here's a good risk management tip. Have a good working knowledge of the ethics code, which hopefully you already do, but add to that the guidelines for the practice of telepsychology and legal standards governing practice. That should be the baseline that we all rely on when we are thinking about how we are practicing telepsychology, especially since it has rapidly been thrust upon us. I think certainly it's important to have professional liability insurance, hopefully most of the listeners do, and to know that the practice of telepsychology is actually covered by your policy. Most people may make that assumption, and it's best if you check and make sure. I can certainly share that the trust-sponsored professional liability policy covers psychological and other associated professional services, including services like telehealth. But all of that is contingent on the insured being in compliance with appropriate state practice rules or regulations. And the reason that I mention it that way is because when we're looking at risk management and things that we might wanna be alert to, it's important to know legal standards governing practice, but it's essential that you focus on your state rules and regulations I think a a lot of people are being distracted by and overwhelmed by the rapidly changing and evolving lifting of restrictions by the federal government, by some insurance companies. It can be quite overwhelming. And I think that, again, it's helpful from a risk management perspective to have a couple of baseline guidelines in addition to the guidelines for practice of telepsychology and the ethics code, it's important for you to understand that while there are many federal actions which relax some requirements, the practice of psychology is governed on the state level. So you must be aware of your state rulings and changes. That's really important as you look at where you're going to go next. I think too, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about competence. Some of us may be a little shaky about our technical competence, but to practice ethically and from a risk management perspective, it's important to have technical competence. And so be aware of where your weaknesses are and get training. There's a lot of training that the National Register and the Trust are providing that can help you feel more competent and be more competent. But in addition, intellectual competence and cultural competence are critical to protect clients and others from harm. It's very important to be aware when you're using telepsychology of factors Regarding diverse populations, language, culture, various impairments that can interfere with the proper delivery of telepsychological services. And it's important to note those factors and their potential impact. And last but not least is emotional competence. And I think given the pandemic and the rapid rise of the need for telepsychology and tremendous changes we're making in our practice of psychology, it's important to remember self-care. Emotional competence includes self-care. Seek out support. We've always at the Trust talked strongly about consult, consult, consult. And I think that an important part of consultation is getting support and sharing some of the frustrations and figuring out ways to build the resilience that you have. So those are some of the main risk management areas uh, that people would benefit focusing on and getting extra expertise in.
0: You used, could you share a little more about what you mean by that word modality.
2: Sure, I'd be happy to. So we often assume, I think, uh, that practice is what we've already always known it to be. And that is the traditional form of a patient or client comes into your office, and the two of you interact in your office, supposedly with minimal distractions, and, it's important for us to understand that that's not the only way that we can provide helpful and effective psychotherapy. Uh, We know that uh, individual therapy is one modality, so a group therapy is another. Uh, Some people use experiential uh, mechanisms in therapy for people who might be experiencing Uh, negative uh, impact of phobias. So those are all different modalities of how to provide effective psychotherapy. And if you look at telepsychology, it's just another way to do that. But what's important is consistently across the board, regardless of the way in which you present or conduct psychological services, the ethical standards and the expectations of good practice are the same.
0: I wanna bring Gary into the discussion now to expand on this modality that Jana was just explaining. But more specifically, tell me and our listeners a little bit about the readiness to which health service psychologists have and hold to go about using this new modality. In this, in this current moment, of course, we've been brought into a necessity, in many cases, to be using this new modality, telepsychology. But what, what can you tell us about how ready we are for that transition? Gary?
3: Well, I think that this is a real success story. The, the results of the survey really show that of all the psychological services provided, six, seven, eight percent before the crisis were provided in a telepsychology mode. Within two weeks' of time, the field as a whole moved to delivering over 80 percent of the psychological services via telepsychology means. That's a massive change done overnight. And it's a real success story, whether you see it as over the last 10 years, over the last 20 years. Morgan was on a committee uh, in 1999. uh, I published uh, some survey results in 2000 about psychologists' involvement uh, in telepsychology and so forth. But by 2013, APA had uh, guidelines for the practice of telepsychology technology since 2010 has exploded with Zoom and, and other platforms to be able to use. Well, we've developed electronic medical records and, and so many different medically, uh, computer-based um, aids to, to facilitate this stuff. And of course, fortunately, with the crisis, regulatory relaxation occurred. All of these things were in place so that it was possible for the majority of psychologists to be able to literally, in in the case of my wife, over a weekend. She transformed her in-office practice from the previous week to an online practice, and we did it all that weekend. Um, She had some exposure. She had done some things. Like many psychologists, uh, she had done various telepsychology things but not really thinking of them as telepsychology. A patient might go on vacation for a month and say, hey, I'm really concerned about it. Can we have some phone sessions? Uh, uh, Somebody could be temporarily reassigned to another city and want to do some some, uh, phone sessions in between. And what we're finding on the listservs and so forth is that Many people made accommodations from that. Some of them were doing things even internationally um, with previously established patients. So when this happened, you know, it was even, I, I think in many ways, the field was in a richer situation than a 50-50. Uh, we were much more uh, close to a 75-25. 75% of the stuff was there. We had some degree of exposure, et cetera. Some people not. And some of the things that people are doing right now, if it wasn't for the regulatory relaxation, would not be appropriate to do. But we made the transition a massive transition and we have things now that we have to look towards improving, fixing, updating, and so forth. Uh, The fact that uh, 20, 25% of the people are using uh, non-approved platforms, that's a concern. It will have to change whether it changes next month or whether it'll have to change by, by the fall, I don't know. The um, you know telepsychology grew up very much with providing access to remote patients who uh, the, the therapist might not actually ever see. And so safety plans and information about resources in the community and so forth, wherever the patient was are, are an expected part of practicing telepsychology. The people who have just moved into telepsychology are showing a little bit of resistance around things like that. Because they're saying, well, what what do you mean? Why do I need a detailed safety plan? You know, the person lives two miles away from me. They have the same police department, the same hospital. They know how to get to the emergency room. Um, And so getting them to think about those issues and about the problem of being able to reach a patient if they don't answer their phone, uh, is not something that they typically think about. There's practical issues that we need to solve, um, such as how do you do psychological testing online? Well, good news is there's a lot of resources that are available that provide that already. People don't necessarily have experience with doing it though. More people need to gain that experience. There's questions about how do you do couples therapy, family therapy, group therapy online. Fortunately, we have some pioneers who have been working in the area, but there's a lot we need to learn. Much of this development to do this, we've been doing clinical research on for 10, 15, and 20 years. Uh, We have a base uh, of research findings on on effective comparability of in-person and online stuff, et cetera. We have a lot of questions we need to answer, Um, but I'm pretty optimistic about the changes.
0: Sam Lusgarden, I'm hearing from Gary a a real success story here, while also acknowledging there are lots of questions and space for growth, and as Jenna stated, a, a need to be cognizant of some of the risk management pieces that I think Jenna described nicely. I've heard, Sam, I've heard you use this phrasing competence versus confidence, and it's sort of been jangling around in my head during this conversation so far today. Tell me more about that phrase you use and what what that meaning might have, what it what it might mean uh, in in our current moment
4: sure and and like others have said, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this today. I was thrilled when I saw the survey go out over email. It's such an important thing to be getting this data from members at um, you know, this juncture. We are going through rapid change as others have spoken to, which just feels revolutionary for our field. You know, I've been talking with colleagues, uh, other psychologists about you know, how long would this transition to move to, I think as Gary was saying, over 80% of members acknowledging they're doing some telepsychology now. How long would it have taken us to get here if it had not been for a crisis like this? So we are we are just undergoing this revolution that seems like every day is unfolding with with new updates and changes we have to make. You know, I wanna I wanna start with my answer by by acknowledging that I, I'm very optimistic too about telepsychology. I think some of the early research that we've seen is that clients are satisfied, they feel like it's an effective modality. You know, it was created, as Gary was talking about, with this this hope of being able to increase accessibility and reduce the burdens that might be or barriers associated with uh, going to in-person care. You know, I always think about people in rural parts of America or those that, you know, would have to balance out child care. Well, now those problems are compounded immensely by the fact that people can't just leave their homes and people can't just leave their children with others to attend a therapy appointment. And so I think in many ways, this is a a conversation about justice as much as it is about technology and how we are going to take that on. At the same point, I think we need to be thinking critically about what this means for our profession from the ground up. And What I mean by that is, where do we learn about technology use? And I think for the most part, that learning is either done uh, in the job, or continuing education. And I think as a, a person that's closely affiliated with training and a program, um, I, I wanna see a, a development that includes, you know, training from the ground up around technology so that when we have graduates of doctoral psychology programs, they feel ready to enter this new world. And I think, you know, the the changes are necessary for those that are Um, coming up and for those that are already in the profession. And so when you talk about or when you mention that phrase, you know, competence versus confidence, I think sometimes we can be quite confident because we interact with technology every day already. So quite confident saying, well, this feels analogous to what I already do. And yet behind the scenes, there are so many critical things to be thinking about. For instance, What are the privacy policies of the company you're choosing to work with? What are their terms of service? You know, one of the uh, manuscripts that we now have in press um, is around uh, data after death or retention policies. So when we create a digital footprint or when we go ahead and use a service to communicate with a client, where does all that data go? Does it eventually get deleted? And what does that mean for maintaining records? And so many questions that are directly related to various sections and standards within our ethics code. So there are just so many questions that I think I'm left with. And so when I say confidence versus competence, I'm saying, you know, let's not be overconfident, even though I'm really happy that we've made this transition and optimistic about it. We need to also try to see where we can seek out and gain greater competence to.
0: Holding both of those pieces at the same time is really essential, the competence piece, and also being confident in one's ability to, to execute and, and manage that type of a service. I recall near the outset of our conversation, Morgan made a point about how this has changed the day-to-day work tasks of health service psychologists. And that point was there's been a shift in patient load. You know, as health service psychologists are really responding to this enormous shift that everyone is experiencing. Of course, patients are as well. And this in in some cases had led to changes in the number of patients that practicing psychologists have, have traditionally seen. So Morgan, what can you tell us about patient reduction and patient load? And more broadly, how does it affect the day-to-day work tasks of health service psychologists in practice?
1: Well, I think that's a really good question for a couple of reasons. One of which is that while psychologists and other mental health practitioners might be very enthusiastic about adopting telepsychology or telehealth methods, we're not entirely sure that patients reflect that enthusiasm. And our survey had some fairly interesting results in that regard. While we didn't query patients directly, we asked psychologists their perceptions of what their patients thought about telepsychological service provision. And over half of them, or approximately 50% of them, said that um, the vast majority, indeed the plurality of their patients, didn't seem to think it was a terribly good idea. Now, we know that when people are exposed to new service delivery mechanisms, there may be some initial hesitation, but there are some things that the face-to-face therapeutic encounter provides that as Dr. Vandenbos alluded to a few minutes ago, you really can't get that well out of a telepsychology session. So that really leads us to question, um, what do we need to do differently when we are providing telepsychological services to capture some of the intimacy that results from an in-person face-to-face therapeutic encounter? And at the same time, are there limits to this new technology? Are there certain things that we should not be doing, no matter how robust the technological platforms are? But to answer the second part of your question, we also noticed a fairly alarming uh, trend in in the psychologists that we had surveyed. And even only two weeks, if you will, into the uh, coronavirus response, we had seen a tremendous drop-off in patient load. And uh, 60%, roughly, of our respondents told us that they had a drop in patient caseload, uh, only about 35% said that their caseload remained the same. And a very small percentage of five to 6% said that they had seen an increase in caseload. Now, we don't know if those decreases came from people who were doing certain kinds of psychotherapy, whether it was traditional, maybe longer term psychotherapy, and we don't know if those who reported an increase had already been doing a lot of telepsychology. But these are questions that we need to keep open and uh, and asking providers as we learn more about how not only providers, but patients are responding to a new distant service provision world.
0: To your point about keeping an open mind and some of the points that Gary was making a moment ago, I think it's good to remind our listeners that we should see and read these data with an awareness that we can and will learn much more uh, from health service psychologists about how this rapid shift to the uh, telepsychology modality is going to change their practice. And so we want to be aware of that and use that, in, use that awareness to prevent ourselves from generalizing this finding well into the future, because this is moving, uh, this area is moving quite rapidly, and that will require, I think, a demand continued investigation. And as, as we've been talking about today, that, that will continue to happen. So these results are, are a quick look at this particular point in time, and, and while interesting and informative. We, we want to maintain our awareness of what they are commenting about, while also not you know generalizing them too far into the future because we will uh, need to do more more research yeah,
1: um and if I might at this point, Dan, what Dr. Martin said earlier about some of the risk management issues that we should pay attention to during this very rapid shift into distance service provision, I think are key. Uh, they will clearly evolve over time, but an issue is what are people doing right now? And I'm wondering if Jenna might want to comment a little bit on some of the major risk management issues that she is most concerned about.
2: Sure, I'd be happy to do that, thank you. Well, you know, I think that I'd like to comment and echo that for Sam that training at the graduate school level on how this modality can differ, what we need to be aware of, and we can be trained to pay attention to certain variables through telepsychology. And I think we will find as practitioners use this modality more, they'll find themselves paying attention differently because the modality is different. So I do think there's a lot of change that's positive that we can go through. In terms of also something that Sam referred to that is an area of risk management concern, and and that is uh, when we're in our offices with our clients or patients, we make sure that our doors are closed. Uh, Some of us use sound machines so that if there are people in adjacent offices or in the waiting room, what uh, the exchange between the psychologist and the patient is can't be heard. Um, it, what's important is that when you're doing telepsychology, you as the psychologist don't have the control over the patient's environment in the same way. And uh, additionally, you don't have control over whether or not the patient might be recording your session. Um, We don't worry about that quite as much in person. Yes, I've actually had experiences where clients have hidden tape recorders, uh, especially if there's uh, a session regarding some legal issues, but that doesn't happen very often. It can much more easily happen in a telepsychology setting. And so we have to be aware that there are so many different threats, uh, uh, viruses, hackers, uh, theft of technology devices, uh, failure of your security uh, uh, security systems, uh, misdirected content. all of those things are very different when you're using telepsychology as the modality of providing services. And so, First of all, you want to make sure, just as you do in one-on-one, face-to-face, in-person treatment, you have a careful statement about the limitations of confidentiality. It's important to talk with clients about this at the outset. It should inform them of standard limitations, like child abuse reporting mandates, those still exist as well as any cautions about privacy problems with broadcast conversations. Remember one of the things I mentioned was technical competence. Uh, It's important for us to translate that into what could happen differently in a telepsychology session than if I'm in the office with uh, a person uh, at the same time. looking at what else could happen, but making sure that you protect sensitive patient data. You wanna make sure you've password protected your device. You wanna secure your devices when you're not using them. And you wanna limit the use of devices to professional activities. Those are not things that we had to worry too much about. When we were meeting with clients or patients in our offices. But going back to something I said earlier, it still relates to confidentiality, which is a standard of care that exists regardless of how we work with clients or patients. So those are some of the things that I think are a little different. You also, want to make sure that you have a different informed consent form. Um, We happen to have one on the trust website that you can use as a template and personalize it to your own form of practice. But it's important that clients and patients understand what terms of service are offered, what services are available. How do you access the practitioner? What are emergency coverage and similar issues that might differ from in-person provision of services? So some of the things are very similar and very basic, but then we do have to be aware of in what ways Mm -hmm. things might be a little bit different. And I think as long as we talk to each other, we consult with risk management advisors, and we read and research and study, we can be aware of what questions do I need to ask? What questions do I need to have? How might I ensure that what I'm providing uh, is within the proper standards of care for telepsychology?
0: Research is an area that is essential to consider. We haven't yet explored it in depth here today. So I wanna bring Gary back into the conversation for some perspectives in that regard. Mm-hmm. Gary, uh, you're of course the managing editor of the Journal of Health Service Psychology, and I think have a really an expert perspective on how the shift to this new modality of telepsychology for many health service psychologists is going, and how will that affect future research involving psychological practice, and are there key areas that should be emphasized with this new modality?
3: Yeah, Dan, I, I really hope that there's a lot of university-based researchers around listening to this conversation today, because so much stuff that we're talking about is re- really almost a plea for do some research, do some research. The One of the areas that I, for example, have been thinking about how telepsychology changes a particular kind of practice Uh, is couples therapy and hopefully research can inform this you know couples therapy there's three people sitting in the room it's a pivot of a head for the different people to talk to each other Uh, you put that into a telepsychology uh, context and several possibilities exist Uh, one possibility is the couple sits side by side facing the monitor and the camera talking to the therapist on the other end and the therapist is talking to the two of them simultaneously. It would be the natural thing that you would expect almost everybody who started doing couples therapy online will do. Okay? But what's the impact of that? Well, one of the things it does is it changes the dynamics. The 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 couple is now talking to the therapist and the therapist is talking to them not the same as the, the triangle that you could have and the therapist could direct the two of them to talk to each other. Okay, so you can have them each turn 30 degrees towards each other, more easily do it. Or there are other possibilities. Each of them could be on a separate computer so that the therapist, well, there could either be three pictures on the screen or the therapist could see the two people side by side talking directly into the camera, and the two, the, the two members of the couple could be only seeing their partner on the screen. The therapist would almost be like a bug in the ear kind of thing, and that kind of a setup. How does that change things? The, one of the things that I've noticed in, in doing online stuff is that because it's primarily the face or the head and the shoulders, that in most cases you're looking at, the sense of facial cues is really much more predominant than it is when, when you're meeting together. Together you're seeing the face, of course, but seeing the whole body, you're judging many things. Online, the face is front and center. And often with couples, you're trying to get them to talk to each other. So if they were actually on two different computers, two different cameras seeing each other, they would probably be more close and potentially intimate or and in some cases forced to be more close and intimate and directly looking into each other's eyes. Um, how does that change things for better, for worse? How does it affect outcome? Wonderful applied clinical research possibilities here and stuff that we need to know that could really inform practice.
4: May I, may I jump in there? Go yes. Um, you know, as I, as I hear both Jana and Gary talk, uh, it reminds me of conversations I'm having right now with, with people. You know, I'm, I'm having meetings all of a sudden that used to be in person and now they're at a distance. And, you know, let's say you have the issue just generally of relationship concerns now we're under self-quarantine or doing remote therapy. And, you know, where is that partner? How do we have the space now to have a vulnerable and intimate conversation potentially with that person nearby? And so like Jana was talking about earlier, I think our ethics really get amplified in this environment now. And, Um, you know, things like privacy and confidentiality, informed consent and consulting become more important than ever before, you know. And then I even have the lighter ones where it's like I'm working on sleep hygiene, but the person's on their bed talking to me, you know. And so there are some massive questions, as Gary's talking about, about what this means for for practice and how we do this well.
0: Let's focus in a little more, Sam, here on some fundamental key terms a lot of our discussion there are many types of telepsychology which we've which we've talked about a lot of our conversation has focused on the video conference modality which is I think a very frequently used uh, modality for for health service psychologists but there are some key terms for for video conferencing things like BAA encryption uh, The kind of We hear HIPAA compliance oftentimes floating around. Tell me a little bit about some of these key terms and and, and what's going to be good for people to be thinking about when they're finding a a video conferencing uh, program to use.
4: Well, in some ways, I'm going to also want to defer a little bit to Jana because I think that this is an area of, of the trust expertise and risk management. But, you know, as I think about HIPAA compliance, I... I really am looking for a program that tries to keep as little data as possible for the people that it serves. Um, Ideally, you have platforms that don't require the clients to sign up and put a bunch of information into a system. Um, Also, I look for platforms that try to respect the data that is collected in really meaningful ways as it is protected health information. You know, things like an email address a phone number, an IP address, these are all considered protected health information. And so it's really important to note that even if you're not having the client put in their first and last name, that they might be putting in other bits of data that is still considered protected health. And so I look for platforms that try to minimize that collection as much as possible and have built a reputation because trust is a big part of this, have built a reputation around respecting privacy and confidentiality. So I think that this is gonna be a a real moment for us as we were talking earlier, um, thinking into the future about what platforms we choose and being really intentional about which ones we select.
2: You know, I'd be happy to to jump in uh, to some of Sam's comment uh, about HIPAA compliance. Earlier, I talked about how there are some relaxation of requirements And that includes some relaxation regarding using a HIPAA compliant platform. Um, But what we recommend from a risk management perspective is that it's still a good idea to use a HIPAA compliant platform with a company that will sign a business associate agreement because non-compliant platforms pose significant security risks. Uh, not to mention that some insurance companies may not reimburse for telehealth on unsecure platforms, whether that's now or later. If you choose to use a non-compliant platform, though, and some do because there can be an extra cost to get a BAA. Quite frankly, when I rate when I weigh the cost-benefit ratio, there, I, I think that it is wisest to get a BAA, especially if you're going to continue telepsychology after restrictions are raised. Um, But if you choose to use a non-compliant platform, you should inform your clients of such, and you need to make use of as many privacy controls as the non-compliant system will allow. It's also important that you be aware that the requirement Uh, And the enforcement of the HIPAA-compliant platforms, as I said before, will presumably be reinstituted after the national emergency is passed, and you will need to upgrade your platform at that time. We strongly, strongly recommend that public-facing applications like Facebook Live, Twitch, TikTok, other things like that not be used.
0: Let's circle back then, Sam. Break down for me what that term BAA means. We've, we've been using it in our conversation here today. I wanna to make sure that everyone understands that term.
4: Yeah, thank you for asking. We can get a little jargony, can't we? Um, especially with all these acronyms too. And um, you know, so I'll just kind of separate a couple of different terms here. So we talk a lot about HIPAA within the profession. I think that's the, that gets the headlines, right? you know, talking about HIPAA. And and when we're talking about HIPAA, we're talking about it from the standpoint of privacy and confidentiality of protected health information, those identifiers that I was talking about a little bit earlier. But there's this separate concept that we've been talking about around BAAs, which stand for business associate agreements. That language, as I understand it, comes predominantly from high tech, which is actually a secondary regulatory act um, on the federal level. And that is an allowance for providers of medical and mental health services to partner with third-party services. As part of that third-party service agreement, the understanding is that there's going to be some shared responsibility for what happens to data that is collected over these means. For instance, if I sign a business associate agreement, with a cloud storage provider, right? Like Dropbox or Google G Suite or Box or OneDrive. If I sign a business associate agreement with any of those companies, what we're agreeing to mutually is that we are going to protect the information that is stored on those servers. Now, if it were my fault, it would be my responsibility there. But if it's on their end, it would be their fault. And so a business associate agreement is a formalized legal document that agrees to the shared responsibility and burden around the protection of that data.
0: What a fascinating conversation this has been as we continue to explore the emerging and ever evolving world of telepsychology. Let me thank each of our discussants today, Dr. Morgan Sammons, Dr. Jana Martin, Dr. Gary Vandenbos, and Dr. Sam Larsgarten, for an enlightening conversation focused on the emerging and evolving world of telepsychology. For our listeners, I hope you'll explore available resources provided on the websites of the National Register and the Trust, respectively, such as the listed continuing education credits, which are designed to cover the basics of practicing through electronic modalities. I'm Daniel Elkert, and this has been The Clinical Consult, an episode brought to you by the National Register and the Trust. Thanks for listening, and remember that this conversation provides general information only, and the views expressed on this episode do not represent official advice, from either the National Register or the Trust. To seek out such formal advice, consult with the appropriate State Board of Psychology or a qualified risk management representative. The survey discussed today, authored by our guests, Dr. Sammons, Dr. Vandenbos and Dr. Martin, will be available electronically via Springer link and will appear in the May 2020 edition of the Journal of Health Service Psychology. And importantly, the survey and its findings are cross-sectional and listeners are advised not to generalize its results to the future or to a different group of providers. More research on the new modality of telepsychology is and will continue to be needed.